someone once uh, asked me, um, she said, in the, in the relative world of time, how long ago did the apparent event happen that you call awakening or something along those lines? And my response was, if I'm honest, the event or the thing that feels like an event was the seeming formation of a sense of some kind of separate self early in life before I forgot, or before I was aware enough to remember and record up until I started becoming aware enough to sort of record memories and think of myself as someone and so forth. And that solid, as that solidified, it's, that's, that became the world of events, that became the world of time for me the world that seemed like a timeline. But even as that was forming, it felt not right, felt uncomfortable, felt false in some way, unnecessary perhaps. Um, but as I think back, someone yesterday requested I talk about awakening, initial awakening or approach to awakening, um, which is always one of my very favorite topics. Um, it just keeps happening. I keep seeing it in the comments on my YouTube channel or people contact me through email and so forth. And um, I just love it. And it really is the, the initial opening, the beginning of the spiritual unfolding, so to speak. Um, but, if, but if I recall for myself how that played out, how that happened, um, very difficult to talk about it in terms of the usual way we use storylines and motifs and events and so forth because it was really sort of the opposite of that. Um, maybe one way of saying it is as I became older, I definitely remember it in childhood, uh, but it became much more solid and heavy in sort of adolescence. Um, there was just this developing sense of binding, a developing sense of being um, stuck or bound somehow. Uh, and at the time, it, it, it was hard. I, I don't think I could have discerned it this way. Um, but in retrospect, the binding was a very heady binding. It was very mental. Um, uh, had a very much a, a sort of thought energy. Um, but it felt very heavy nonetheless. It felt quite binding and artificial and uncomfortable. And whether, to, it's hard to, for me to tell the degree to which I learned this from other people or I just discerned it myself, but for some reason I discerned that the way to fix the problem was to th do more thinking. The way to fix the problem was to solidify an identity, to think myself more into being a self. And even now I see the vast majority of uh, quote unquote advice you see out there has something to do with that, actually. It's pretty uncommon to find uh, something as direct as this type of message that says there's a possibility to completely undermine uh, and dissolve that apparatus. Usually it's some form of, here's how to get better at being an identity. Here's how to get better at getting what you want. Here's, and so forth. Um, and not to discount all of that, there, there are certainly practical means in life that can be valuable in the relative sense and so forth. 
but for me and for, for a lot of people, certainly not for everyone, um, that is like pissing in the wind until you take care of the underlying issue. Until you take care of the personal issue of suffering, it doesn't really matter how you rearrange those deck chairs on the Titanic. That's how it was for me, at least. So I knew instinctually I had to take care of that right away, as soon as I knew it was possible to do so. Um, and again, practical means, practical strategies uh, to, to get things done in life and so forth. Um, they're not completely useless, but... Um, what I find, and what I definitely found for myself, I find a lot of people would agree that once you feel the call for this, for once you feel the calling to address the fundamental illusion about you, then nothing else is really going to satisfy you until you do that, really. Um, and it also doesn't mean that has to be the only thing you uh, spend any time doing. Although for some people, you spend most of your time to some degree or another engaging that through some sort of practice, whether it's mindfulness, meditation, inquiry. Um, but it definitely takes a central uh, position in your life Once for many people. Once you realize like, okay, none of these other things are really going to deeply satisfy me. You know, relationship and money and uh, success and positive thinking and all of it. Uh, having more stuff, having new stuff, getting better at my craft, my art, my um, anything. Now, I think sometimes in the creative space, in the artistic space, it is probably maybe more satisfying than some other areas of life. And yet often what happens with an artist um, or a creative type is they find themselves in this massive dichotomy where something comes through when they, when they say perform art or, or do the creative impulse something very genuine and pure comes through. And then in other areas of their life, they're, they're so contracted, they can't find that. And it, it's very, it can be very frustrating. Uh, so, so even in that sense, uh, you know, just learning to give yourself to your art form and so forth uh, can, can get you a ways and perhaps even to awakening. But even then, I would say at some point, um, it becomes important to get completely vulnerably is that a word vulnerably vulnerably honest with yourself and adjust that focus until your your focus really is on that fundamental issue that fundamental instinct that there's something to address here something about um i like i like zen because of the terminology is kind of fun like the problem of birth and death sounds so big right and it is um or perhaps you could just say the problem of suffering. Uh, and one way or another, I point to this over and over. Once you've aligned to that, uh, that's a lot of the work. That's a lot of what holds other people up is sort of negotiating with it. I'm kind of interested, but I'm kind of not. I kind of want this other stuff, but I kind of want that. But I kind of, you know, at some point you just got to go, I know this is real. I know this is more real than what I take to be real. I know there's something false about the way I'm perceiving myself and, and the world and, and all. Um, and, I, and, I, and I trust that, I can, that that can be sorted out. I've seen enough. Maybe I've seen it in another person. I've seen that shift or um, I've just been around it enough to, to instinctually know that it, 
it's okay to go there. That the the cacophony of um, doubts raised by the mind are ultimately nothing but thoughts. And that's a big barrier to get through. That's a that's really trips a lot of people up. Um, you know, you believe one thought that says, you know, you've made God angry and you're going to spend an eternity in hell because you became interested in a different kind of religion or something like that can be very scary or you're going to become psychotic or, you know, you're joining a cult or um, you're going to abandon your family if you wake up and you will have no interest in the material world or something like that, right? That, the, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of fears, and by the way, none of those have objective tr truth, really, in, in the way I'm speaking. What they, what they are is they're, um, they're indicators of the power of your ego. It shows how well your ego knows you. It's an ancient force. And people talk about demons and these sorts of things. That's, that's where demons come. That's what demons are to me. I, I have a respect for them. They're, they're motifs in human consciousness. They're pain body. And they have survival mechanisms. And they know, they know you. And they know how to trigger you. And they know what is going to move you and what's going to cause you to freeze and doubt everything, right? But the big but is those are nothing but thoughts. In one moment, that's only a thought. Um, you know, the ego can, can roughhouse with you a little bit, but when you really start to push, when you really start to inquire, you take up a, a koan or you take up an inquiry practice and you really start to dig into your identity, the gloves come off and you'll find out what the ego is really capable of. You'll, it will come with fire. As my Zen teacher would say, it doesn't take it lying down. Um, it will get you where it hurts and it'll get you where it knows you can go unconscious. Um, but again, all of that ultimately comes down to uh, uh, just a bunch of thoughts. And to the degree that you're bound into thought, to, uh, the, the degree that you take your identity from thought, there's actually no binding. You're not bound into anything. There's no one that's bound. But the, the tendency to believe thought, essentially, uh, is the binding here. So, so that's an important barrier to get through. And... Um, how does that happen? Well, I, I, probably different ways for different people. Part of it is um, just keep coming back to this. Keep coming back and trusting that there is some way out of suffering. Trust that you're not here to suffer. Trust the Four Noble Truths. Trust uh, what Christ said. When he said, knock and it will be opened. Um, um, trust your own instinct that goes beyond thought and beyond the, you know, this, the narratives of the mind, what even if they're scary narratives. Trust that there's something here, something to discover, something real. Um, that's part of it. And part of it is maybe just what we're doing. Like I, I really try to um, give people a sense ahead of time that they're going to come up against these things, these the fear barrier, the doubt, mass, all of it. Um, and, and just explaining what it is. It really is the mind. It's the mind. It's thoughts and it's okay. Uh, but yeah, if you're on your own, you don't have a background in this. Uh, you've never met anybody who can speak uh, from experience in this space and you start having thoughts like that, that will terrify you, you know, and that can change your whole direction in life in regards to your spirituality or your own path and so forth. So, um, so I think getting getting some information out about it is helpful as well. 
But uh, another important key to this is really just to understand the nature of thought itself, to, to be, become aware of what a thought actually is and how, um, how much you do or don't believe thought at any given moment and what contributes to how much you do or don't believe a specific thought in any given moment. And a lot of it has to do with the emotion tone. If you're in a, in a, in a sort of peaceful, blissful emotion tone, or perhaps even ecstatic emotion tone, um, although ecstatic can quickly turn into something more like fear, perhaps, because it's, a, it's an intense emotion, let's say. But um, often when you're in sort of relaxed states and so forth, Thoughts don't feel heavy to you. They don't feel binding, and you're not so inclined to grab on and buy in and so forth. Uh, when you're when you're already experiencing fear physiologically, when the body's experiencing fear, uh, high stress situations, and so forth, then often uh, and unfortunately, we, that's when we tend to believe thoughts more. We tend to uh, solidify thoughts. We tend to bind to them. Um, it's hard to say if the chicken or the egg came first on this, but what that results in is coming is coming back into some internal world, apparently. Not that that actually can happen, but it sure seems like it can happen for quite a while. Uh, in the internal world of fantasy, the internal world of um, strategy, agenda, planning, uh, how we're going to take care of this the next time we come in contact with it. What we don't realize is that... Well, a couple things happen with this when we start to form this internal experience and move into it sometimes. What we don't realize is the very act of doing that um, in a subtle way reinforces this sense that we have to. It reinforces the sense that I don't have the capacity to feel what there is to feel in the environment or in my internal environment, whether it's sadness, pain, confusion, frustration, uh, anger. And so the world of mind identification, or the world of being able to retreat back into some apparent inner space, um, has, it does have certain benefits in its own right. Um, the cost of those benefits is very high. It's higher than, than the value of the benefit, but we can fool ourselves about that. So one apparent benefit is that, that we can sort of numb ourselves to what's actually happening in the, in the world, um, in our world, in our immediate experience, uh, how we're affecting other people, uh, how other people around us are feeling. We can numb ourselves to that. We can distance ourselves from it. And sometimes just simply through distraction, we distract ourselves from it. Uh, it yesterday we were talking about, um, what was I going to say? can't remember. Anyway, I was going to connect it to something we were saying yesterday, but I, I lost it. But yeah, we can sort of numb ourselves uh, and sort of play the shell game, you know, up here. And the way we can do that is by the, the way that makes that seem not just possible, but, but reasonable. And we can convince ourselves we're actually doing something there is through the illusion of time, right? Because you can't really think about what's happening right now. There's nothing to think about. <laughs> it's what's happening. Uh, we have to put things in time. We have to, to, to start to think, to start to construct a, an inner world. We have to imagine something that's not exactly this. Uh, 
can be what happened a moment ago or what might happen in a moment, but what's happening right now is just the five senses. The, the reflective nature of the mind turns that into something else, and it does it through filters that we don't see. They're unconscious filters, um, tendencies, uh, proclivities, and so forth, perhaps even karmic. Um, so, so the components that go into this ability to formulate an inner world um, are the sense of time, the sense of separation, this, the ability to distance from an experience or distance from the world. Now, th that is a reasonably late perceptual filter to drop, the, the dualistic filter, the dualistic perception doesn't drop early on um, and it, because it's actually very deeply buried in our processing. So when we're doing this, when we're forming an inner world, it's not like when you're a 11 year old kid and something happened that was very intense with your family and you're feeling an intense emotion. It's not like you're going, okay, I'm going to back out of that and construct an inner world and start imagining my parents being nicer to me or imagining something that's not here that I can pacify my mind with by enjoying you know, the, the image of that and, and thus not feeling what's actually happening right now. Like you don't know you're doing it, but you're doing it, right? That's that's what's happening. Um, but that, but it depend it's dependent upon an ability to to actually perceive yourself apart from the physical world, and including your physical sens sensations. Probably is the primary issue is that the physical sensations seem so intense, and then as soon as we perceive ourselves as a self, it can judge that and say that's too intense, and thus if it's too intense, I need to do something about it. Right, and then we construct an inner world and space and time, and start imagining something to pacify ourselves. Um, <clears throat> so that sense of separation, the sense of time. So time and space are literally constructed uh, to. Well, I'm not sure if they're constructed to do this, but they're required for this experience, for this internal experience to occur, uh, in earnest. Uh, and this happens so, by the time we're in early adulthood, this happens so frequently, we start to live in that space. And that's the perception of the separate self. The perception that there is a separate self, separate from the world. It has qualities, it has, it has memories, it has a past and a future. It knows where it's going, it knows how to make things happen, it knows how to avoid things. And, and it feels very much like me. It feels like me. And... Um, it knows how to pacify itself, but unfortunately by this time, the only way it really pacifies itself is building more of itself, building more of its inner world by seeking more, mental seeking, right? Um, this is where we find ourselves when somehow at some point we, we hear a message like this um, in one way or another that says that that you're experiencing um, isn't actually what's happening. It's just not. It's not the truth of who you are, the truth of what you are, the truth of what this is. However you hear that message, right? Um, and you may hear it a few times and it just gets very quickly incorporated into that inner world. Like it gets incorporated into the story, right? Because that inner world can co-op basically anything as long as you believe it. As long as you, as long as you turn it into thought, which is reflection and believe it, it will incorporate anything easily. But if you hear the message enough times or in the right way, all of a sudden it can click and you suddenly taste something that is just not that. It's so much more vast, so much more 
primary, so much more intimate and real. Uh, whoa, what is that, right? That's, that's that first taste. That's the, maybe I call it recognition. Um, I think a lot of people these days, it's happening from reading Eckhart Tolle's book, <laughs> Power of Now. It's a pretty potent book that way, I think. Uh, perhaps you listen to a Zen lecture. Perhaps you read a, a book. Um, perhaps you have a, a tragedy in your life and it breaks something open and you experience something more real than real. There are a lot of ways this can happen. YouTube, right? But at some point, something clicks in that you realize what you've taken yourself to be, this inner world, uh, this thought-based sense of self. It's just not only not the case, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the source of suffering. It's the source of your suffering. And simultaneously with that, that taste of something expansive, more real than what you were taking to be real, um, paradoxically, it also comes with suddenly there's an acute sense that, oh my God, I have been suffering. I've been suffering and I've been overlooking it. And that can be very uncomfortable for some people. It can be very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like you almost wish, and I've heard people say this, I almost wish I didn't read Eckhart Tolle's book or I almost wish I didn't start getting interested in non-duality and watching videos or whatever because, because the, the aftershock of that is suddenly feeling a lot of intense emotions, a lot of repressed emotions and stuff. Now, unfortunately, there, there can be a kind of immature um, response to that, and that is you blame it on spirituality, you blame it on the book, you blame it on... The truth of it is it was already there. That's the whole point. It was just repressed, you know? Um, this stuff we're doing, this, this, this kind of speaking, uh, sitting and meditating for prolonged periods, inquiry... They don't create something new in you. They just reveal what's there. That's it. And the first layer that's revealed is often this mass of suffering, this mass of repression, this mass of illusion, this mass of avoidance, right? Um, the first noble truth of Buddhism, life is suffering, life is dukkha in the way we normally live it. Um, and yeah, that can be daunting when you feel that. It's like, whoa, oh my gosh. Now everybody's different. For some people, they just sort of always felt that. Like personally, I always kind of felt it. I always just never felt good. Even as a child, I felt everyone suffering and whatever. Um, for other people, uh, I don't know. They, they had a very successful ability to live in that inner world, but it was also a, a pretty good inner world, I guess, in some sense. They maybe had a childhood with parents that took very good care of them and all that, um, which is fortuitous, of course, but it also comes with... Um, an ability to become very disillusioned when you come into contact with other forces in the world that aren't so uh, interested in keeping keeping you safe and happy. Um, and so either, however this plays out at some point when you start to see, oh, okay, that, that inner world I've been carrying around and convincing myself actually through a lot of effort every day all the time that that's real, that's who I am, there's a huge cost to doing that, a huge cost, and that is suffering. Um, you could say suffering in one way is just seeing things as they're not. Uh, energetically moving in discord with what is. And that's uncomfortable. Be largely because it takes so much energy, actually. And it's discordant. It's, um, it makes us feel separate. How, how much more miserable can you feel than a separate, distinct entity in a vast universe that is doesn't really care about you because that's a whole bunch of other entities that are interested in themselves and here you are 
trying to get, a, you know, something, trying to get a little bit of peace or a little bit of something from some other entities that don't really care about you, and then you're just going to die, right? That's a pretty miserable world to live in, <laughs> right? That's the world of separation. So how do we, how, I mean, it's, it's, the whole thing is absurd. Like, how do we, how can we attenuate that fundamental belief that's based on separation? We have to create this very intensely energetic, uh, very uh, energetically costly inner world. And, it, and, and that feeling of doing that is suffering. So this comes off in layers. First, the first layer is seeing that's just not real. That's not really real. It's not. Those thoughts aren't real. Those thoughts don't define who you are. Um, and with seeing that clearly enough and deeply enough, there's a shift, typically. That's what I would call awakening. Um, and it's a big release. It's a big release from that, that primary illusion that you're putting so much energy into maintaining all day long. And suddenly you just don't have to do that anymore. What a freaking relief that is, right? It's a huge relief. <laughs> It's a huge relief. Um, it's not the end of the story, though. It's the beginning of the story. Now you're freed up to see, okay, well, what's that even based on? Why was I doing that? Oh, because I perceive myself as separate from everything, right? Uh, and then everything's going to be dualistic. Everything's going to be uh, some sort of confrontation or, or, or seeking or desire or aversion. You're always going to be in the business of pushing away or pulling towards yourself wanting more of this, wanting less of that. Like you're in the, the business of constantly mitigating um, danger. That's how, it's, that's how it feels to feel very separate from everything. Now, sometimes with that first shift, with the, with the awakening, um, you taste that non-duality. You really do fundamentally taste that like, oh, wow, everything is connected. There's a sense of unity that can be there for a while. But m almost from what I've seen, almost never, well, I have seen it on occasion, I think, but usually that's, that's not a permanent experience. The, the, um, the sense of physical duality, like the, the sense that I'm separate from this, from this, from this, uh, and that this is a world of objects that are moving in relation to one another, um, that that completely collapses with the first awakening is very uncommon. Usually you start to see it more um, it's uncovered and you see it more clearly, which is good. Then you can engage it more directly. And that requires some subtle investigation that we've been talking about through this retreat. Um, but that first and fundamental um, release from that world of thought that world of cognitive identity, beliefs, narratives, history, past, future, tribe, uh, whatever you identify with, whatever you identify with overtly, you will be released from. That's the point. That's the point. And this is something I see. Uh, this is a bit of a challenging area when it comes to like interacting with like large groups of people, like especially through YouTube and stuff, because if I sit down with somebody long enough, it's pretty obvious whether this has occurred usually, usually, but, um, but the mind is very sneaky, very sneaky <laughs> and it can convince you of anything. Right. And so you can hear what I'm saying and, and kind of get it and, and actually feel it because it's true and you resonate that it's true. Um, 
but are really sort of circumventing the fear of really letting go. And you can kind of convince yourself that this, this, that you already get it or you already got it or something like that. Um, that happens on occasion. Uh, I try to be very, very direct about this. And there's a reason I'm that direct. It's because I really want people to have a good shot at feeling in for themselves and seeing how radical this actually is. This first movement is quite, quite a radical thing. It's not a shift in perspective. It's not a shift in the way you see things. It's not a, you're not learning a new spiritual idea or context. Um, and it's not just momentarily seeing that one thought is, is just a thought, right? That's sort of mindfulness practice, which is valuable. Um, this is seeing that every thought is just a thought. Every thought you've ever had about yourself is nothing but a thought right now. Uh, it doesn't touch the essence of what's this, what's happening, what's going on. Um, it doesn't touch it because it's just a reflection. It's like a ghost. And to see that every single thought is that way, all of your perceptions of who you are, what you're, everything, all of it, your, your whole cognitive identity, your gender, your age, your tribe, your race, your nation, your beliefs, your political stance, your, um, your history, your problems, your big problem, that one central core problem, um, the things you're good at, the things you're not good at, the things you have, the things you want, the things you can't do without, all of it, all of that is really this thought. That's a, that's a pretty radical clean sweep um, that happens at some point. And it's a huge relief. If, if I could wish one thing for anybody walking the face of the earth, if they want that, would be that, really. Um, so once you sense this, once you sense that what I'm saying is, is true and that it's something you want to engage yourself, uh, how do you go about that? How do you go about that? Um, well, the mind, of course, wants to believe that there's an exact way to do it, right? Just like there's an exact way to change a spark plug or bake a cake or something. Um, uh, and I can't really say there is because I've seen it happen in so many different ways. I've seen people wake up in very different ways. And the way they wake up, the way you wake up, is very unique to you. Um, and this is a really important point. This is really important because something about that world of mind identification has this massive um, flavor of otherness. Everything's other, right? You, have, you know how you always feel left out? Everyone always feels left out in life, FOMO, right? Like, the, like everybody, other people get something you don't get. They understand something you don't understand. They have something you don't have, right? Again, the world of duality. Um, that, get, that flavor gets applied to this uh, for a while with people. Um, this, this fixation lasts longer than that initial one, say, getting over the idea or getting over the perception that your fears are not just thoughts, right? That, that sort of initial fear barrier and, and talking yourself out of it. Once you go, okay, that's, those are a bunch of thoughts. Like it can be scary. The mind can say all these scary things, but they're, they're essentially thoughts. This one goes a little farther. Usually um, it lasts longer, this, this sort of fixation. And it's this, maybe it lasts longer because it's not obvious, right? A thought about, you know, becoming, uh, you know, ending up in a psych ward because you're trying to wake up or something. That's, 
That's kind of obvious. It has an obvious quality to it. This one, you don't often notice it until after. I've heard people say this many times where it, and I, for me, it was the same way. I was like surprised on the other side of that. But it's the sense that, sure, this can happen maybe to someone. Buddha, it happened to Buddha or it happened to so-and-so, it happened to Rupert Spira or it happened to Eckhart Tolle or whatever. But it can't happen to me, right? That's, it's not, this isn't about me. And again, this is a, like a preconceptual it's an impression, not a thought. So it's not obvious. If it was obvious, you could, you could directly uh, confront it. But, you, but it's sort of hiding in the background. And it, it kind of has the quality of um, not good enough. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. Right? That kind of thing. Um, and that's a, an important step when you realize even that's a thought. Even that's a thought. Even though it has a tone to it and it has a sort of resting um experience tone it's really just ultimately a thought um because because it is based in the dualistic perception that there's a me and there's a you and there's other people and all that when you see that that's just not true and that's just another layer of thought um then then things get a lot simpler this whole thing gets a lot simpler you don't have to figure out how eric did it and you don't have to figure out how chad did it and you don't have to figure out how eckhart tolle did it and you don't have to figure out how Angelo did it. And you don't have to read through the, you know, 40,000 volumes of the suttas to figure out how Buddha did it. You, something clicks that you go, wait a minute. Oh, okay. It's not about something out there, right? I can say that a million times, but until you get it, you'll believe it's something out there. Something out there in someone else's doctrine and beliefs or experience. It's not. So this is a really important shift that happens. It's not usually the shift yet, but it's, damn close. And it's when you just stop seeking externally for this. When you realize everything else you've taken to be important, real, true about the world has seemed external since you've been thinking. Everything has seemed external in some way or another. Even your own emotions, like you look for external validation for your emotions. Why? Right? Um, you look for external validation to be who you are. Why? We just have this sort of externality because, again, we perceive ourselves as this tiny little blip in the entire universe of other things and other people and other events and so forth. So we feel small, and that smallness makes us perceive things in a very distorted way. This, this movement I'm talking about flips that on its head completely. Somewhere like in the Three Pillars of Zen, someone in deep samadhi doing an inquiry came into the Zen teacher and said, all of a sudden, it felt like the whole entire universe flipped inside out. That's how this feels. All of a sudden, you're like, shit, I don't have to look outside, right? The mind, and the mind's going to say, well, how do I not look outside? How do, how do you look inside? It'll you know, think about it. But once this occurs, it doesn't have to think about it anymore. It's not a thinking thing. It's a feeling thing. It's an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's an instinctual thing. You could say it's the feminine aspect, but it's the feminine aspect not not buying into relationality, not looking for anything external, just going directly inward. Um, letting go inwardly, letting go inwardly. This is a very, very simple act. It's a very simple act that I'm talking about here. Um, I could use all kinds of terminology. I could say it's learning, it's learning to trust yourself, 
but you know, that has all kinds of connotations. This, it's an it's a instinctual act. It's an ancient act. Um, my Zen teacher told, told a, just a very short story. It was kind of fun. Uh, Aiken Roshi, which was one of his teachers, um, the head of the Diamond Sangha, he said, you know, he lived in Hawaii and he lived there, I think, most of, if not a whole, all of his life and, and taught there. But he was in Doksan one day, which is where you come in contact with the teacher, Zen teacher, and interact directly about your practice or whatever. And he said this young guy came in and he was um, a surfer and he had that like sunny California disposition and just like surfer's personality and stuff. And he sat down and he goes, what's new, Roshi? And uh, Aiken Roshi looked at him and he said, I'm not interested in what's new. I'm interested in what's old. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's this. It's, it's ancient. It's, um, it's older than the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Um, it's an ancient voice. The only place you can find it is inside, inwardly. You have to go inward for this. It doesn't sound like thoughts. It doesn't sound like the yakety yak of your mind. It doesn't sound like all the stuff everyone told you all, all throughout this lifetime about how to be a, a good person or the right person or your parents or experts. It doesn't sound like any of that. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with any of that, but that's not what this sounds like. It's decidedly different in that it's more intimate. It doesn't need to justify anything. And it's not apart from you. It's not apart from you. That's the point. What's not apart from you? I love the instruction with moo. You just become one with moo. Moo, mooing, moo. There's only moo. Don't come and tell the Zen teacher what moo is. Don't explain it, you know. Don't even contemplate moo. See that there was only moo. Only ever was moo. Moo is a symbol. Call it I. Um, that's challenging for some people because it has a lot of mental implications. Um, call it instinct. But there's something, anyone listening to this, there's something at the center of what you are, at the core of what you are, uh, that is more primary than anything you've ever learned, ever heard, any thought you've ever had, any experience you've ever had. It's more real and primary, and it's more accessible than, than the most salient, powerful, spiritual teaching you've ever heard or read. That's it. That's where you go. <laughs> and you've never left there, by the way. But it has to be a very um, intentional acknowledgement. And then the letting go isn't an act. The letting go is part of it. The letting go is already there. I don't know if I can say it more clearly than that. <laughs> and once this, you touch this, uh, you know this, um, thoughts can still be there. Thought can say, well, nothing's happened yet, and you will disregard that. You will know to disregard that. You won't go, what should I do with this thought? I need to go ask Angelo. You will know that is nothing but a thought, just a ghost, not a problem, not a problem at all, because you're engaged fully with this. And you also won't care about a shift in identity. You won't care about awakening. 
You won't care about any of that shit because that came from outside. All that knowledge and those words, all that stuff came from somewhere outside. This is direct. The first time you've ever tasted something real. So you don't need to look outside of this for anything, any external validation. So it doesn't matter if something happens or doesn't happen. Where else you, would you want to go? <laughs> You've arrived. <laughs> it's that real. Um, I'm not going to describe it because it's not a, those descriptions will do you no good uh, and, and don't matter once this has come online for you. You're staring right into it, staring right into the abyss, the abyss. You're also staring nose to nose with yourself and nose to nose with every patriarch and matriarch in history. Nothing moves here. You don't move forward or backward. There's nothing to solve, nothing to nothing to solve nothing apart contemplating what's happening even what's happening is seen to be a thought an external thing what's happening who cares what's happening is a thought <laughs> might feel like being in love in a certain way And it's incredibly simple, so simple. <laughs> it's not complicated at all. One way of pointing to this I really like is, is the way Papaji did it. And he would just say, don't move your mind. Don't start a thought. Because a thought is movement. When you're here, then that will be obvious to you already. You already know that. Just stop. Don't move. I'm hesitant to say anything else. <laughs> um, you may notice, though, at some point that this isn't really a meditative thing anymore. You may come in contact with it first through deep meditation or whatever. But you also may find out you will get up and walk and it's still there. You're still nose to nose with it. It doesn't matter what's happening or not happening, whether the external environment's loud or quiet. 
whether there's thoughts or no thoughts, none of those things matter. They don't affect us at all. That's in one sense, the red hot iron ball you can neither spit out nor swallow. So my wish is, anyone listening to this, if you want to find your way there, if this makes sense to you, my wish is that you find your way there. But don't look outside. Don't look anywhere else. Don't look in your mind. Don't look in doctrine. Don't look in books. Don't look in doubts. Don't let anyone convince you through arguing to believe your own thoughts again about anything spiritual. Just don't look there. Look in the one place you haven't looked yet. And you'll know it's, the la you'll know it's that place because you'll stop looking for sure. <laughs>